This is the Lead to Lead podcast, where we explore the realm of leadership through the lens of faith. Here's your host, Leah Haygood. Hello, and welcome back to the Lead to Lead podcast. My name is Leah, and I am your host. And I have brought back the one, the only, the lovely Jacob Malden Haygood III. No, he's not really the third, but my husband is here. Say hi, hubby. Hello. Hello. Well, I have brought you on here because, we, as you know, we're talking about our third and final installment from Leadership Lessons from Netflix, and we're talking about a show that has become your mild obsession, I would say. Is that a fair statement? Mm, pretty fair. Is it more of an <clears throat> aggressive obsession? <laughs> uh I would say The West Wing takes number one in this oh, is second. yeah. Well, you'll understand, like, he loves political things, and this is why this show that we're going to be talking about is right up his alley. Um, we are going to be talking about the Netflix show called The Crown. And if you are not familiar with The Crown, basically it's talking about the... The reign of Queen Elizabeth, is she the second? The second. Okay. And it starts from before she becomes queen, and it's it's go- making its way through her life. Um, where did we find this? <laughs> it was 2017. Uh, we were in quite the scenario, actually, at that point. Mm. Uh, you were about seven months pregnant with our second born, Caleb. Yes. And I had just recently lost my job. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I was working nights at Waffle House. So I got sick. Uh, I got, I think, a mild case of the flu. And you were watching the show. And I was like, what is that? And you were like, oh, this is a the series The Crown is new on Netflix. And so I was quarantined upstairs in our, at that time, spare bedroom. So I ended up, and there was a TV in there, so I ended up binge-watching <laughs> The Crown because I couldn't move because I had the flu mm-hmm. and didn't want to get you sick, so I stayed in that room for the most part. So that's how I started watching it. There you go, because of the flu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I had heard you know, the hype about it, and um, that was right at the beginning of the series. It was brand new. And um, I want to go ahead and talk a little bit just kind of about how each season has been different. So far, there have only been three seasons, which is kind of annoying in and of itself because they'll wait a full year for anything to come out. It's annoying because you binge watch when it first comes out, then you have to wait another year before you get the next one. And actually, it's 2020 now, and they just released season three late last year. Yeah, so... Crown people, we love it. Get it out sooner. No, I'm just kidding. They have actually announced, too, when it's only going to be five seasons. Oh. So. Wow. Well, that kind of made me sad. But at the same time, they pack a lot of stuff in each season. So, to be fair, they pack in a lot of history and having to cover a lot of ground, and it gets pretty intense. But anyway, let's talk about... Uh, just a brief synopsis of the series as a whole, and then talk about each of the seasons individually. So The Crown gives us commoners an inside view of the royal family, beginning shortly before the death of King George VI, which is Queen Elizabeth's father. Yes. Right. And it leads up to the um, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And like I said, so far there have been three seasons of The Crown. The first season... 
depicts the transformation of Princess Elizabeth to Her Majesty. So what does it mean from her going to being go from being a princess to a queen? As well as how becoming queen has affected her marriage, her relationships with her family, and the concept of duty over desire. That is a huge kind of focal point of really this whole series is the sense of duty that the crown and the queen, it's stability. So we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But season two dives deeper into the marital struggles of the monarchy between her and Prince Philip, while also revealing more about Prince Philip's past. He was... He came from a background where his mother was mentally ill, and he went to a military boarding school. Is that correct? Yeah. And he was having to deal with some inner struggles with that. And we also see more of the tension between the queen and her sister Margaret and all of her drama. Margaret's just a little extra. (laughs) You know, she's just... It's a perfect example of... The older sister or the older sibling being much more mature, having all her ducks in a row, and then here comes second born child that's just crazy. And we see that in our home right now between our two boys that our oldest Isaac, he is very regimented, loves a routine, don't mess with it. And then you've got Caleb who messes with the routine and likes change. So it's very... Uh, It's a very tense tension, which is kind of redundant, but I'm saying that on purpose. So, And then you get into season three, which Jake has seen all of season three. He watched it without me because he couldn't contain himself. So, well, that's another counseling session. But uh, I have started into season three. Literally, I was just watching it today at the time of this recording. Um, So he'll tell you a little bit more about season three. But basically, it depicts the queen moving into a middle-aged part of her life. So she, by this time, she's, what, in her 40s? She's had four children. Well, also kind of sharing about the relationship between her and Philip, it's kind of stabilizing. Before, in the first two seasons, it's been a little wonky, that there's a lot of change, a lot of strife, a lot of jealousy. Whereas in this season, there's a little bit more... Even Keel, they've been doing this for several years, and so they kind of know what to expect. With Margaret, she is kind of a hot mess, to put it mildly, um, where she's going through a divorce. Uh, but actually, the main focus of this season is Prince Charles. This is right around the time where he's in college, correct? Mm-hmm. Where he meets Camilla Parkable. I said that real Southern. Camilla Parker Bowles, but, <laughs> you know, um, talks about his relationship that begins there and him going off to school and the relationship between him and the queen and or lack thereof. You know, it, it's it's this is covering a lot of stuff that maybe us as Americans have not been able to see until now. Which season has been your favorite, Jake? I think season one still maintains as my favorite. It's kind of establishing everything. You obviously have more dynamics uh, building up, you know, starting the story. And it's funny because a lot of movies or TV shows I've found, season one's normally the least favorite mm-hmm. in a lot of them because they're developing, they're kind of getting used to it. Like I remember one of my favorite TV shows growing up was Full House. And mm-hmm. season one's probably one of my least favorite mm-hmm. of the series. <clears throat> I like it when it gets on. 
more onto the um, more people, so to speak, and stuff like that. More developed yeah. stories and characters and stuff. So I look at that and I'm like kind of shocked that I like this, but I think it's also historical too that mm-hmm. drives that point. So um, yeah, season one's right now my favorite still. I like season one. I think I like, I don't know. I think I like season two, though. I haven't finished season three, so I can't give that a fair assessment. But between one and two, I'd have to say I like two. Just because I kind of knew what to expect. And so instead of trying to figure out, okay, who's that again? Because there's a lot of names in this. that Like, you're a history buff, and I like history, but you will, like, laser into, like, okay, that's... That's Winston Churchill. This is Prince Philip. That's his, that's the Queen Mother. And like, once I have the basis of who I'm looking at, then I'm good. So maybe that's why I like season two. But I can't wait to kind of finish season three. Now, one of the things that the creators of The Crown said from the get-go, said, hey, we are not going to keep the same cast members throughout this whole series and just make them look older. They made the decision that say, hey, we're going to keep these guys for a couple seasons and then we're moving on and getting new actors and actresses to play these roles. How did you feel about this? Did Were you in support of it or did you think, oh, come on? Uh, it's one of those areas that obviously you can only make somebody look so old. Yeah. So it made sense. However, it was hard going from Claire Foy to Olivia Coleman as the queen. Not that both of them are great actresses, mm-hmm. but just different mannerisms and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of, and then Prince Philip and, you know, Matt Smith to, uh, I forget his name. Tobias Menzies. Uh, so just different acting styles. It definitely was a change of scenery, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I would say that it, it was hard, but I think it was necessary. Yeah, at first I was like, oh, no, they're not. No, come on. I, I really enjoyed Claire Foy and, and Matt Smith. It's hard to not see Doctor Who. Did you know that Matt Smith play, yes. was one of the doctors? I don't know which one he was. But, you know, this is kind of interesting that like Doctor Who is a prime example of changing out actors like every so many seasons. And like, uh, did you ever watch much of Doctor no. Who? You kind of refused, didn't you? I refused. You? <laughs> We had some friend of our friends of ours that they loved about it, it obsessively, and he's one of those like if someone is that obsessed with it, I'm not going to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I liked Matt Smith or David Tennant, one of those. But anyway, this is kind of like the same philosophy that said, "Hey, we're going to switch out some people." So from what I've seen so far, I mean, I get why they chose Olivia Coleman and Tobias Menzies. Like they, I mean, they kind of jump straight into it, and which is is very impressive. To channel the same character, you know, or historical figure. They, they do have, they're able to practice because they could just watch speeches and watch mannerisms and that sort of thing. So I guess just because I haven't finished season three, I'm partial to, to Claire Foy and Matt Smith. But I'm willing to give Olivia and Tobias a chance because I'm fair. <laughs> <laughs> what is your perception of the actual royal family? Uh, I have a great respect for them. I think they represent a lot of things that people need to treasure. I think ultimately they have good intentions. I think uh, the queen herself has good intentions now kind of making their way through 
the monarchy chain. I don't know about Prince Charles just with his his uh, choice of actions over the years. Right, right. However, his uh, <laughs> son Prince William seems like a good guy. So, I think England or the United Kingdom will still maintain a monarchy hmm. even after the Queen is gone. Um, just because I think it's in their nature, it's in their blood to be that way, yeah. which is fine. Uh, you know, every country was created differently. Right. So I have a great appreciation for the royal family. I think they represent stability mm-hmm. in a lot of situations, which is not. So I'd be inclined to say that I think they're necessary in a lot of ways. I say this very carefully, but, you know, I think of the United Kingdom in America. America is like the rebel, rebel stepchild sometimes, you know, if you look at history. <laughs> because obviously we broke away from the United Kingdom uh, yes. to become what we are. But... You know, there's mannerisms in the United Kingdom that we don't have here. Yeah. And there are qualities that could be, you know, better than what we have here. And not to say, you know, I'm full American, believe in freedom and everything like that. But I think there's something to appreciate about monarchy because ultimately if we look at, we're looking at this as a Christian worldview, ultimately Jesus is king, right? Right. So there's something to appreciate about that. And also monarchies held true throughout biblical times. Starting with uh, King Saul and making their way through until about exile into right. Babylon. So Right. There's a lot of downfall in those times too. A lot of as downfall. Well. And I mean, you'll learn a little bit of kind of the the history of the royal family prior to Queen Elizabeth's reign. If you've seen the King's speech, you're kind of familiar a little bit of how well, he's Prince Albert, but once he becomes King George the Sixth, the reason why he became king in the first place is because his older brother abdicated the throne. Yeah, because he wanted to marry a divorced woman, and the Church of England's like, we're not gonna do that. And so it was already full of drama, and there's so many waves of drama. Like there's kind of a little bit of a ripple effect. It goes to um, Charles with the whole. Diana and Camilla Camilla. love triangle thing going on, infidelity, all this other stuff. And then you go, the most recent thing, it's not really a bad thing, but it's just interesting the choices that they made is Harry and Meghan choosing to step away from their royal status. Is that correct? Yeah. They chose to become more like common citizens. Yeah. I wonder what the the motivation is behind that was because I mean I I could imagine that being in the royal family you are viewed under a a microscope and a telescope at the same time well you are you're critiqued on everything you do so you're held to the standard that you're expected to be perfect yeah because ultimately you represent perfection in some eyes people don't understand that you know we view presidents and we view governors and we view all these people at you know under a microscope. Imagine a family which is held as you know they have a queen, they have you know a sovereign. So she's an ultimate authority. Everything she does is viewed, scrutinized, questioned, sometimes appreciated. You know we look at the president. And people are like oh well, same thing with the president. The president's more like the prime minister. Yeah, and which still scrutinized, mm-hmm. but you can vote them out. Yeah. You can't vote her out. That's true. She's so, there by blood. <laughs> so, but I think, once again, it's stability. Right. So we're kind of going back to that topic of stability. Right. From what I've gathered, just from watching, you know, I love 
watching documentaries and I've seen a couple on Princess Diana and one of them was uh, Diana in her own words and it's a recording that she of an interview that she does with this man I forgot what his name is but kind of talking about how her perception of the royal family and how she was kind of herself was viewed as an outsider because of the empathy that she had towards people and it seems like that is kind of like there are two kinds of people in England either people that adore the royal family because of the symbol like you said of stability and there's something special about still having a, a royal family and a monarchy that that means something and then you have the others that say well they're sitting in Buckingham Palace doing nothing and they're more of like a trophy and they don't really count anymore it's just they're antiquated so I'd have to disagree with that statement. I don't. They do a lot. Right. <clears throat> I'm saying it seems like that there's those are the two main views that I've seen. Either you are, if you're for the royal family, it's like oh they're you know they're never going away, or why haven't they gone away? Well, I <laughs> you think know? you have to think about who's the current person on the throne, which is Queen Elizabeth II, who's for a lot of people is highly admired. Right. Uh, she's been reigning on the throne since she was 25, and she's in her 90s. It's yeah. the longest reigning monarch to ever exist. So, yeah. you know, compared to her father, who was one of the shortest reigning monarchs to ever exist because he took the throne at a later age and he died early right. of uh, lung cancer. You look at her and how people have adored her over the years. And I think, you know, Prince Charles has this really weird vibe about him, just being <laughs> honest. I'm not a big fan of Prince Charles, definitely not a fan of Camilla Parker Bowles. Sorry, uh, Chuck. But I think people look past him a little bit to Prince William. Mm. Because I think a lot of people like Prince William in Kate. Yeah. Because ultimately Prince William represents two things. He represents the stability like his grandmother, but he represents the caring like his Mom. mother, which yeah. people loved. Yeah. I think there will be a greater appreciation again of the monarchy even after Queen Elizabeth uh, passes when, honestly, Prince Charles passes and it goes to Prince William, I think people, if the monarchy can hold, yeah, I think there will be a stronger appreciation and love for it again because people adore Prince William and Kate. Because at the end of the day, he represents two things that they love. They love Diana. They love Princess Diana. Yeah. And they love the Queen. Yeah. So you've got two sides, which could be a really, really strong monarchy, ultimately. Right. It's almost like uh, the best of both worlds. Yeah. Right. Can you dive a little bit deeper into um, season three? Just because I don't have a whole lot of background yet. I know that it starts off with, obviously they're having to address that there's a new actress. So the way that they do that is kind of um, showing the new postage stamp uh, profiles of of the queen and that's how they kind of introduced the character. But can you go a little bit deeper into season three? Yeah. They just kind of carry her in. She's just gotten older. Right. You know, it, I think it's a smooth transition, but it ultimately starts with her talking to, um, you know, it kind of enters a little bit, but it goes to her talking to Winston Churchill mm -hmm. as he's on his deathbed. You know, what they're trying to do there is tie everything back together. Okay. We've come from season one where Winston Churchill became the prime minister again under King George the sixth. Mm-hmm. He retired under Queen Elizabeth II, and, you know, he still is funny. You look at season one, who he was in season one to her was a pain in the butt. And then season three, she talks about how he was her guardian angel. Mm. So there was a great appreciation for him. 
I think as she's matured, she's seen some valuable things he he brought to the table, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, he even says like I was a bully, and ultimately Winston Churchill was a bully. Yeah, uh, but he was a great prime minister. It shows just maturity. It shows that she has grown an appreciation and learned lessons. And ultimately, kind of a situation we have right now in the United States. Season three starts with the, uh, the Labor Party leader about to win the prime minister position. I believe it was Mr. Um, Harold Wilson. And Winston Churchill says on his deathbed, he said, you know, we got to watch out for him. Mm-hmm. Now, you learn later in this in the series, uh, season three, she does grow an appreciation for Harold Wilson. Wilson. I don't believe they see eye to eye on how things should be run, mm-hmm. but she, he was a somebody to talk to. Right. But at first, she's skeptical of him. She she thinks he's a communist. Mm-hmm. While the the crown does not favor either side, you know, it is believed that Queen Elizabeth has some more conservative views mm-hmm. of things, and you know, so we kind of have a similar situation in the United States right now. A lot of people become very skeptical of the Democratic Party and where they are. Because they're leaning more socialism type stuff. And so there's this issue of how far is too far. So you have an establishment who kind of says, eh, we don't want to go too far. But are we holding on too long Mm. to certain things? So that's kind of what's going on in season three for the political realm of the monarchy is there's a a shift between conservatism to a liberal prime minister. And so it's her getting used to that. Her marriage is pretty much stable. They kind of do things together, but uh, Prince Philip is also dealing with, I guess his, his role in life, you know, feeling kind of stale at times. Mm. Um, So you see that throughout the, he ends up meeting with a, a minister who ends up being a good friend to him throughout the years. Um, and we see that through when, from when he interviews the astronauts who went to the moon, you see how Princess Margaret and her husband, Lord Snowden, yeah, Lord Snowden, uh, Tony, their struggle of marriage and how unhealthy it actually was, mm-hmm. and how she ends up having a little fling with a younger guy. He's been having a fling for a long time, uh, just really, really unhealthy. And then you see ultimately Prince Charles. Him, he really comes on the scene now. You know, he kind of was introduced here. He, season one, he's barely in it. Season two, he's introduced when you talk about Philip's schooling and how he had to go to the same school and thought it was miserable. Mm-hmm. Season three, we kind of really bring him in the picture. You also bring Princess Anne in the picture too mm-hmm. at this point. So you have two important roles starting to come into the play. You have Prince Charles becoming the Prince of Wales. The key to that role and why it's so, such an important role is the last Prince of Wales was who became King Edward VIII, which mm. is David, the former king, the king who abdicated. So yeah. the Prince of Wales has a bad kind of vibe to it, so to speak, but that's ultimately who's next in line. Prince Charles ends up going to Wales to learn, to learn about the culture because ultimately he's the Prince of Wales. And they kind of send him down there a semester early to do schooling down there with a professor who really doesn't like him, who's really anti-monarchy. And it's funny, that dynamic, how it first starts as very stark different, you know, I don't like the monarchy, he's trying to understand him, 
But it ends up, and ultimately at the end of that episode, Prince Charles is supposed to give a speech in Welsh. Mm. And it's ultimately when he's being knighted to become the Prince of Wales. Mm -hmm. And ultimately the government sent him down there to kind of make, not amends, but make peace with the Welsh people because the Welsh people didn't always have a good view of the monarchy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So kind of was a way to smooth things over and show that they cared. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, Prince Charles, he goes down there. He ends up befriending the professor who's teaching him. By And then one night he goes to his home, and Prince Charles sees how the professor and his wife interact together, and then also how they interact with their kids. And this starts to mess with him a little bit as far as like his relationship with the queen, his mother ultimately, and the Duke of Edinburgh, his dad. The wife in the episode mentions how she thought he looked really funny when they, like, you know, took their kid up to bed, goodnight, said goodnight, and all that stuff. And at first, the professor didn't think anything about it, but then he thought about it. And you see how it kind of goes back to Charles and how he starts to look at his relationship with the queen and how very distant it is and how very almost formal it is. Mm. You know, uh, the queen was kind of notated as not being an ultra loving mother. Mm-hmm. She was she was good to her kids, but the crown took precedence over her kids. You know, the nanny normally did the more lovey-dovey stuff with right. them. You start to see that and uh, see how he starts to kind of com- get in conflict with the queen. Mm-hmm. How he meets Camilla Parker Bowles. Um, <laughs> as uh, He rolls his eyes as he <laughs> says that. <laughs> uh, and... You know, how that relationship starts to form and kind of the how people messed with that. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot in the episode. And I don't want to give away the whole season, but it's definitely one to check out. It's got a lot of good stuff as far as yeah. going into um, the middle life, so to speak, of the queens. Right, right. Where it's not so much about the newness of being the queen. It's more about everybody around her is getting older and things are changing. And um, I love the tagline for... I don't know if it was specifically for season three, but I saw it on all the artwork for season three. And it was simply these four words, times change, duty endures. And I think it's so true because like season three, a lot of things are changing between political views, between family dynamics and just people getting older. You still got to do what you got to do as the queen, but everything else around you is changing and how do you adapt to that? So I have three talking points that will lead us into more of having a leadership mindset. I mean, granted, the queen is a leader. (laughs) So a a lot of these are, it's not so much figuratively, but it's literal. She's a leader of a country, even though she's more of a symbol, she still has some influence. So the first part I wanted to talk about is how should we as leaders respond when we are thrusted into a position that we don't think we're ready for. And this question is targeted towards season one, where she's still Princess Elizabeth at the beginning of the season, and her father, you see her, you see him get progressively more ill. It's lung cancer, right? Right. And you see him, like, coughing up blood, and then he dies by, the, I think, the second or third episode of the season. Second se- episode, he The dies. second episode, Yeah. And so you see this young woman who is freshly married, um, had to pull some strings to get married to Philip because of just his family and everything. And now she's like, boom, you're queen. 
you've gone from Her Royal Highness to Her Majesty. And so how do we as leaders, when we have a situation like this, maybe someone up and quit in their job and you were next in line and you didn't think you were ready for it? What are the responses that we should have? I think what I wrote down was typically it's fight or flight. Either we rise to the occasion or we run away. (laughs) Yeah, I think you have to understand her background. She was 25 when she ascended to the throne. That's pretty young, if you really think about it. Mm -hmm. To think about somebody stepping into a monarchy role, ultimately she's queen, people are bowing down to her. Mm -hmm. That's pretty intimidating at 25 not to mention her prime minister is literally probably at that point about 50 years older than her yeah Churchill was was. in his 80s when Mm -hmm. she was first ascended to the throne so the intimidation of I don't know enough Mm -hmm. that uh you know there are people out here that know me and he's he's one she she of course she says there are plenty of smart people out there that know better than me that's but for whatever reason the crown landed on my head. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she acknowledges that she may not know everything, but ultimately it is her responsibility and her duty that she has to do it. And so, you know, her marriage is about four years old at that point. So still pretty young mm-hmm. uh, in marriage. So a lot changed. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a royal highness, when you're a prince or princess, there's a lot less responsibility. You're still kind of held to a regard, but... Ultimately, you don't really have to take on the everyday duty as a king or queen did. So it went from being able to do royal duties, like attend events and stuff like that, to, oh, I'm the one that people go to. I am now under a microscope. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Uh, I think pairing that back to leadership, we have to look at our uh, kings in the Bible, too. You know, you look at King David. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When Think about when, at what age did King David... When was he told that he was going to be king? He was a boy. He was like, what? Well, like a teenager, like 16 or something like that. Right. So imagine, so King Queen Elizabeth was 25. King David was probably in his teens when he was told he was going to be king. Uh, now, he did not ascend to the throne. Until he was about 40. Until he was about 40. So there was time. But think about being a teenager being told, hey, you're going to be king one day by a prophet. I mean, that's huge. I would have been like, okay, where did I go? Where did I sign up? Like, <laughs> get me fitted for my crown, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so it's funny how God uses those times to effectively equip leaders. Mm-hmm. King David was just tending the sheep. Mm-hmm. You know, he was not somebody you'd say, oh, that's a good king. However, God saw him as a good king. Yeah. You look at uh, Solomon at the end of King David's life, how he had to take, and he became the wisest man to ever live. You look at Elizabeth taking on such an important role and how she handled it, it's pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. So I think leaders can really, really benefit from looking at people like King David, King Solomon, Queen Elizabeth. You look at how they took the reins and kind of said, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we want to take away from this is when you're ascended to the throne, some people say, You don't want to be ascended when you're not ready or you'd feel not ready when you ascend. Ultimately, if you're in the Lord's will, you are ready when you ascend to that role. There is no such thing as the wrong time because the Lord may be having you wait on something or he may say, okay, now you're ready. I think it's important as a leader to number one, realize that you are ready when you're ready. And that's kind of a redundant statement. 
But it's true. When the Lord allows you to ascend to a role or you receive a role which you don't feel fit in, that's when you need to take the first step to acknowledge you yourself are not fit for it. However, God can use you if you allow him to fill the void of that role. Right. It comes down to, I mean, this is a phrase that we've heard a lot that, that God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. So yeah. basically it's about being a willing vessel to do whatever. So if you call yourself a Christian and you, and you are following Jesus and his teachings, that's, that's it, that you need to have a willing spirit and say, Lord, whatever you want. And then he equips you through that. So so, it's backwards mentality. So we have to understand, first of all, that ultimately we ourselves are never ready because we're sinful. We're sinful, uh, fallen world. However, we've been saved and sanctified through him. So the Holy Spirit ultimately dwells in us. That equips us to do the roles that we're called to do. So if you have the acknowledgement that I can't do this alone, I can only do it. It's only by the Lord's will that I can do this. That's a healthy start to that. Where the train tracks typically fall off for a leader is they'll get on that train track, they'll acknowledge the Lord is there with them, and then pride will sink in. Oh, well, look, it's going smooth. Oh, this is me. I'm calling the shots. Mm-hmm. Oh, things going really well. And all of a sudden, it starts to go off the train track. We look at King David with Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. Had an incredible kingdom. What did he do? He allowed sin to creep in. King Solomon, he's a wise man, but he loved women. Mm-hmm. It caused a lot of downfall in his life. Right. So you look at these roles, you look at the people in these roles, it takes a lot of things. Duty endures, Mm -hmm. which means it continues. Right. So it doesn't stop. Right. And that's the thing I think we have to first acknowledge is, like I said, God has to be number one. and, and And he has to be calling the shots. Otherwise, you ultimately will fail as a leader. That kind of transitions into the the second point I want to talk about, and it's more of uh, marriage roles and authority and that sort of thing. So here we go. How do you handle a marriage where one spouse, quote unquote, outranks the other, in particular when the wife outranks her husband? So you find out a little bit, I mean, you have a taste of it in season one, but in season two particularly you see the struggle that Prince Philip has with the fact that his wife is obviously um, higher than him on a royal status, like a royal blood. He married into this family, so his wife takes precedence, and she's on the throne. And basically, they're having to cater to her needs and push him aside, whereas he wants to take on the role of a husband but can't really do that because she's a sovereign. So how are we supposed to handle, like, for instance, let's put this in perspective of a leadership couple (laughs) that the wife may be a CFO and the husband is working in the call center. Like think of that sort of scenario. How should we handle that? Yeah. So you have to, it's interesting because with a Royal line, you have to realize that he could never be King. Mm-hmm. Of that particular monarchy because of the bloodline mm-hmm. goes to the firstborn of the sovereign, which was Queen Elizabeth. So a lot of people get confused by that because if you actually think about it, if a king becomes king, he has a queen. If a queen 
ascends to the throne, she doesn't have a king. Because ultimately, it's like in cards. Which yeah. one's higher, king or queen? King's always higher than queen. Right. Well, if the sovereign is the queen, the king can't be there. Right. So that's why it kind of works that way. And what's even more interesting for Philip was he originally wasn't Prince Philip. He was just Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Yeah. And he got the his royal highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, by a little bit of pushing yeah. to get something. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you have to understand, first of all, God's role in a marriage. A lot of people have this mindset that God has it in line where it's like God, husband, wife in like a trailing order, whereas actually it's more of a triangular order. When a marriage is created, God is at the top. He's the top of the triangle. And then you got husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Now, ultimately, the husband is over his wife, biblically speaking. Uh, but there's a high, and this is where a lot of people are going to get like, well, hold on a second. But you got to listen to this. The Bible says that, that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. But husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here's good news, ladies. Yes, your husband may, in God's eyes, outrank you. But he has an incredibly harder responsibility. And I think is ultimately he is supposed to love you as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that mean? Self-sacrificial love. And that's hard, if we're being honest. You know, for those of you who heard the word submit and cringed a little bit inside, I want to encourage you with something. You can be the greatest asset to your husband by encouraging him because ultimately, if you're praying for him and constantly pointing him back to the Lord, he will lead your family in a way that you would be willing to submit to that authority. You would want that in your life. And I know a lot of people don't have that luxury. Some people think that as a bad thing. I want to tell you that's a good thing. And that's what you ultimately want in a marriage. And listen, I fail daily. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm still a work in progress. You know, I feel the pressure of being a self-sacrificial love to my family. And I want to lead my wife in the best way possible. Just like I said, acknowledging the roles, we have to then look at it back in the business worldview that because of our society, yeah, there are going to be women who outrank men as far as career path and everything like that. And that's okay. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I think it goes back to pride. Yeah. If we're being honest, if a husband is being very, very hateful towards his wife because she outranks him, that's pride. That's insecurity yeah. creeping into his life. And if the wife is being prideful at the fact that she outranks her husband and kind of shoves it in his face, that's pride. We look at it, if we look at it from that point of view, it's not so much how should we handle it. It's we have to be humble enough to say, listen, no matter where we serve, we serve the Lord ultimately. Mm-hmm. And pride is the issue there, not necessarily the, you know, salary or anything like that. If you are playing the games with your spouse of maybe you outrank them in, in career path or money necessarily, can I be honest with you? You need to repent of that. Or maybe you're being insecure and you are making your spouse feel like trash because they make more money than you and you feel like you're not worth anything. You need to repent of that. You need to acknowledge that the Lord is the one who ultimately provides everything. If that's the case, then really none of it's y'all's. It's ultimately his. He has bestowed to you certain responsibilities. I would encourage you if you're in that role and you feel that, to really examine your heart 
in that and not so much your spouse's. Have a, a humble heart to say, you know, I need to support them in that role because that ultimately is going to bring God glory. Husbands, if your wife outranks you career-wise, you know the best thing you can do is lead her spiritually. Mm. Self-sacrificial love, which means you encourage her. You push her to do great things. You're her number one fan. And then wives, if you outrank your husband, if he's, I don't know, if he's sweeping floors somewhere Mm. and you're a CEO, you need to encourage him. Lift him up. Yeah. And... And say, you know, I'm so proud you just get up and go to work every day and you support our family and you love our family. That, in a sense, is submitting to your husband. That is submitting to his authority as the spiritual leader of your household and it'll lift him up and ultimately you two will work together better. Right. Right. That's good. You kind of touched on this when you were talking about season three where Charles is having this conflict between him and his mother and realizing that there's a distance uh, emotionally between them. Um, it's not so much a, a mother-son relationship. It's more of a queen-prince relationship, very formal. And uh, we've had this overall overarching theme of the crown represents stability and that it's unwavering and that it's constant. So should a leader be more concerned with having the perception of stability or empathy or a combination of both? I think it was, it's both, ultimately. I agree. Um, however, in this particular series, you have to look at it from this point of view. When Prince Charles makes his way back, um, I think this is when he finds out that Camilla's married some random person. Or no, I want to say this is when he comes back and uh, he's coming back from Wales. He comes back to Buckingham Palace uh, and he's really just kind of Mind blown of how he view saw things down there, how things were, um, and probably evaluating his own relationship with his mom. And ultimately, he made a very controversial speech uh, that basically said, "You know, you people are Welsh and should be proud of that." And and uh, you know, the crown ultimately kind of makes speeches that are more not favoring either side. Yeah, very so, middle of the road. So he comes back and at, and has to ask her secretary to speak to her. Um, which is weird to me. That's very weird. And so, uh, first the secretary says no. Oh my goodness. <laughs> or that the queen didn't want to see him tonight, that she'd see him in the morning. And then, oh my gosh, I wish I had a sec. No, I don't. Yeah. I'm sorry that yeah. I love my children. Go ahead. Um, then, <laughs> then she, you know, he says, okay, she said, you can see her for a minute. And he kind of says, you know, uh, can I get a thank you for what I've done? She's like, a thank you for what? And he's mm. like, for going down there for all this stuff. And she begins to talk about his speech and how she finally read the translation because it was in Welsh. Mm. And that she was really upset over that, but also that there will be no thank yous for duty. Mm. And that it's just expected of you. Yeah. And she dates back to season one when her grandmother wrote her a letter that says, essentially, she's going to have to die as Elizabeth Mountbatten to become Elizabeth Regina, the queen. Yeah. And that ultimately the crown must win. She has this mindset of, listen, this is part of, your, this is your duty. This is, this is what you're, you're called to do. So that's just expected of you. Mm-hmm. You need to, you need to put your personal opinion aside. And he says, does anybody care about my opinion around here? And she says, no one. 
So I think she's carrying a little bit of her bitterness towards having to kind of always make the decision based on a figure rather than herself. But that ultimately she believed duty trumped empathy as a queen and a mother. So I would go as far to say that both is key to be successful. Because here's the thing. If you put duty over empathy always, nobody will ever want to work for you. Because they'll think you don't care about them. Yeah, and ultimately, a, you don't, let's be it, honest. It's a very detached way of living. Because, I mean, like you said, it seems like the queen, other than feeling very stoic, she doesn't really attach herself to any emotion. Like, it's <clears throat> it's very level. There are no valleys. There are no mountaintops. It is all flatlands. When you tie in duty and empathy, it creates a better balance. And ultimately, somebody is able to do what they're called to do but have the humility and the empathy to realize their audience and where their audience is with things. Right. So that's that's kind of the point of that is seeing that in the crown, the lack of empathy, while it didn't cause her downfall, it definitely caused some detachment issues that, you know, later on we saw when Princess Diana passed away and yeah. at first she wasn't gonna have a funeral for her. It was kinda like, Well, she's out of the family. And so, you know, so heartless, you know, and so it's one of those things like if you have, if you're all duty and no empathy, it comes across as heartless, don't care, very dogmatic. But if you're all empathy and no duty, then you're just a fluff ball that just, just, oh, I just want to love people and I don't want to have any responsibility. It's very hippie like (laughs) yeah Yeah, so you gotta have a good balance between the two of those right realizing that structure still needs to take place but that structure is formed by people yeah right so ultimately i think we, we wrote this down together that leaders we need to prioritize and decide how we are going to be as a leader where we are creating healthy boundaries while offering support to those on our team, as well as providing stability and hope. And I think, you know, Queen Elizabeth, she offers support in just verbal communication, like saying, like, oh, well, I, I, I support you, but nothing past that. Yeah. Stability, for sure. She is trying to be as unwavering as possible that, you know, they've been there their family line has been there for hundreds of years. She wants to maintain that image that um, even if life is crazy all around you, all around you, that the crown is always going to be there. Well, you look at her recent speech about COVID-19. She came on and basically said, you know, while this is all going on, we have a hope mm-hmm. that we're going to get past this. Ultimately, she is being the level-headed, mild-tempered, you know, she's the symbol of stability. She's offering, okay, yeah, life may be crazy, but we're going to get through this. Right, and that that is such an asset to have, especially during all this mess with COVID-19. Could you you imagine if the queen was like, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. We're going to (gasps) die! Everybody go crazy. Everybody would literally think everything was falling apart. Oh, for sure, for sure. And... 
you know, we Jake and I, we've been talking about the Enneagram, and I'm a two. I'm a two-wing three, which is I'm the more I want to serve people and care for people, and sometimes I neglect my own needs, whereas Jake is a five, and fives are, like, no matter what, in times of crisis or on the calmest day ever, they're able to make clear decisions, think very objectively, not subjectively, they research things. So I think the queen is probably a five because she's able to stay calm in times of struggle. She detaches from emotions, which fives do as well. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, but, I mean, that's actually a huge asset to have during these times. And think about it. She was, she became queen right after World War II, right? Or right in the middle of it, actually. After. After, okay. But she was dealing with the effects of it where people were still struggling with that. So that's a good thing that Queen Elizabeth has. Now, however, the the healthy boundaries, I think she sets up fortresses instead (laughs) of just simple boundaries. It's like, don't come any closer. And there's harm in saying, you know, you need to stay miles away from me. And then that's almost as bad as saying, let everybody walk over me. You want to always have healthy boundaries, and if you haven't, if you're looking for a book on boundaries, uh, one of the um, my favorite books is uh, Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud. Yeah, um, that is a great book that describes healthy boundaries between not only work and life type relationships, but also family members mm-hmm. and your wife and your kids and how that should look. So, you know, a lot of people they struggle with boundaries. A lot of times, family becomes a I don't want to say hindrance because they're not, but sometimes you as the family unit, you'll say it's a wife, husband, and kids. Sometimes the extended family can become, try to influence the main family unit. Mm-hmm. While there are healthy influences of that, there are also unhealthy influences of that. Right. And so you always want to make sure you're balancing the two of those with a healthy perspective. And that ultimately carries into your leadership roles because if you allow unhealthy boundaries at your family life, you're allowing healthy boundaries in your work life. Right. In both perspectives. For instance, let's say if you are super detached, like you're a leader, but you're super detached from your team, there may be a grown perception among your team that you're like untouchable, that people can't approach you, that if there's an issue that you don't really care about them, maybe you just are so focused on the goals that you just forget about empathy uh, for your team. Whereas on the other side... If people come to you for every little thing trying to uh, get you to cater to whatever they want and you just walk right over your boss, both of those are negative things. So it's a matter of having a healthy boundary of saying, hey, you can come approach me and let's talk about it, but know that what our ultimate goal is and that there has to be structure and rules in place in order for this balance to occur. I know in the in the restaurant industry, that boundary can sometimes be so difficult to find because for instance, I know like with you at Waffle House and Chick-fil-A and Subway. So we have a lot of food experiences, but especially Jake, he has held management roles at Chick-fil-A, Waffle House and Subway. Two of those, he was responsible for scheduling. Mm -hmm. Correct. And some of your associates will come up to you and say, hey, I can't work this shift. And you're like, okay, well, you need to find someone to work it. Well, can't you find someone to work it for me? No, I scheduled you this and you need to fulfill it. 
And I'm like, well, I can't do it. Or they just do a no-call, no-show. And so they have to suffer the consequences, right? Yeah. And so it came down to, as a leader, <clears throat> forming healthy boundaries, when somebody like that would come to me, I would say, you got to find somebody to work it. And that gave them the personal responsibility. Now, I c- here's the key leaders. You can't throw last-minute stuff on people. Right. There were times I made mistakes, would update a schedule or change the schedule, and they had already had something planned. And that wasn't fair on them. Right. But there also is the boundary of, you know, I created the schedule two weeks ago. It's been up for two weeks. You've known about this. You've known you're working this day at this time for two weeks now. Yeah. Sorry. You need to find somebody to work in. If you don't, there are consequences to that. Right. So just... You got to make sure that you're showing empathy by not being totally heartless, but, you know, even giving suggestions. Hey, you know, I hear Daniel likes to work a lot, so maybe you could switch a shift with him. Or maybe he can pick up your shift. He's looking for 40 hours and he only has 30 this week. Right. You know, one thing I encourage, especially men, you always want to have healthy boundaries with the people who work under you, especially if they're females. Mm. Um, you always want to maintain a role that's honorable and has integrity. You know, I think all too often the world kind of plays off the whole secretary and boss having a fling thing. I think that's totally wrong and you should never entertain something like that. Right. You know, you have to learn how to have healthy boundaries. Maybe you bring in somebody with you every time you have a meeting, if that's a problem. Mm Mm-hmm. So accountability, uh, have accountability constantly. I think it's a great thing. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I think that we covered this, gosh, pretty well. And I'm, uh, thank you for coming on and and giving more of a deeper look into the life of her majesty. (laughs) Um, who, just for funsies, I'm going to have a couple rapid fire questions. Who is your favorite member of the Royal family Dead or alive? Probably Queen Elizabeth II. Really? Mm-hmm. Why? Because you're so much alike. <laughs> <laughs> you would look great in in her little royal suit. No, what? Her. her little? She don't wear pants to pants. <laughs> ah, she doesn't wear pantsuits. That'd be like Hillary. But no, like with the little hats and like her little pastel colored dresses and yeah, stuff. Yeah, I'm not going to go that route. But <laughs> I think just there's something admirable about her that I, I really enjoy. Or especially in the crown. And, Did you, you know, say admiral or admirable? Admirable. Okay. <laughs> yes, I mean. She, she can act like an admiral too. Yeah. Uh, so there's just something admirable. Admirable. <laughs> now I'm really thinking about what I say um, about her. I um. Was it just one rapid fire question? No, I was trying to think of my favorite character oh, because sorry. I'm the host and I can say whatever I want. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh man, should I stick to bloodline or can I be <clears> like married? Because I'm a fan of Diana. I know that she was married. She hasn't been on the first three seasons yet. I know. I'm talking about royal family just Uh, in general. If we had to go with someone only on the crown, I I would go with the queen. But throughout the whole realm of the current royal family, I don't know enough about William and Kate. I I like them as people. They reproduce like crazy. How many kids do they have now? Like four? I think they got three or four. I know. So if that's the case, we reproduce like crazy. Then shut up. No. <laughs> <laughs> they just had them so boom, boom, boom. But I, I think Maybe I... we had 18 months, or sorry, 19 months and 24 months. 
I know. Just hush. <laughs> Getting real personal here, guys. But anyway, no, I think I like Diana because of the fact that she was such a breath of fresh air for the royal family. And I know the queen was not a fan of her because, God forbid, you show some emotion. Well, she had some she had some weaknesses in herself that, right? Um, you know, as far as just being almost codependent and mm. to the point where she let an insecurity manifest. Now, ultimately, you know, it wasn't her that led to her downfall. However, she was making choices that weren't ultimately ultra great either. Are you talking about Diana or the Queen? Diana. Oh. Well. So. But anyway, I liked her. I liked her. And what's crazy is she died. We were like two. We were babies. We were very little. Like, she died in what, 94? No, it was 1992. No, oh. no, 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 no. It was uh, 97. We're verifying the facts right now. I can't remember. I thought it was in like 96 or 94. August 31st, 1997. We were only five years old when all that happened. So I found out a lot about her history later. But I just like her. I thought that she brought a freshness to it. What are your predictions for season four? Where do you think it's going to go? I think it will go into Diana. You think so? I think so too. It'll yeah. go into the 90s when, because um, right now it's sitting in the 60s and 70s. Season three is, season one is the late 40s, early 50s mm-hmm. to mid 50s ish. Mm-hmm. Season two is fi- late 50s to into 60s. And then we're in like the late 60s to 70s right now. So, we'll so, get into 80s. so we will get into eighties where Diana does come on the scene. I'm excited for that. I I need to get through season three just to say I got through it. But anyway, well, cool. Well, thank you so much, Bobo, for coming on here and just helping out with taking out some real life leadership points of view and take Queen Elizabeth's strengths and also add in some of the strengths of. Even Philip. Philip kind of showed some more empathy, like wanted to listen to the people sort of thing. So they're an interesting combo. But this concludes our leadership lessons from Netflix little trilogy. I have enjoyed this a lot. I think it's been fun. And um, I hope you as the listener, if you've gotten nothing from this, that you've gotten maybe three new shows that you could watch on Netflix And I want you to continue to have the mindset of looking at everything in your life with the mindset of how can this be translated into a leadership principle, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And even taking it like the next level as far as saying, hey, what are some biblical principles that speak about these things? And having that lens always keeps you on your toes, keeps you fresh as far as having the mindset of a leader because leaders are always learning. I've always, I've heard that phrase a lot recently and it's true because if you, if you aren't learning, you become stagnant. So I encourage you to keep watching Netflix (laughs) and keep uh, striving to grow in your leadership. And I hope that you've gained some insight from these three episodes as well. Moving forward, 
I have been thinking of some content to to post, and I think it would be incredibly negligent of me to not write something about the effects of COVID-19, not necessarily the, the physical effects of COVID, but the emotional, the national, <laughs> uh, global effect of this, and I'm calling it contagious. There are more things in this world that are contagious than just a simple virus, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Some things that are good that you could be spreading. So keep an eye out for that episode. Like I said, we're going to continue to make episodes on a bi-weekly basis, and I'm, I'm so pumped that we're able to do that now. So if you haven't already, make sure that you hit that subscribe button on iTunes, that you follow us on Spotify. You can also follow us on Google Podcast. I can't remember if that's a follower or subscribe or whatever, but do whatever you need to do to get alerted of the new episodes coming up. Uh, I'm really excited about this next episode I'm going to be writing shortly. And share this episode with a friend. If you love The Crown or if you love Netflix, share this with a friend that maybe it will give some insight to them. What also I would love for you to do if you can, actually, no, I know you can. So if you will, take the time to write a review on iTunes. What does that do exactly? It basically gives more notoriety to the podcast so that more people can see this. So if this podcast has added any value to you and you would love for other people to discover this, go ahead and write a review on iTunes for me. Give it a a five-star review. That would be awesome. I would really appreciate it. And share it with a friend. And also, don't forget, you can subscribe. Excuse me, not subscribe. Um, follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook. You can find out uh, more information or just some daily encouragement from there. I look forward to interacting with you, having maybe some dialogue and whatnot. Thank you so much again for taking the time to listen to this. Jake, any final words that you'd like to impart to all the people listening right now? Um, <laughs> Rather fire, <did> <laughs> uh, you know, Continue to seek the Lord every day. Yeah, absolutely. Especially during this time, because I know this. these are just uncertain days, right? Mm-hmm. And... You know, we talk a lot about stability and hope, but truly, if you are a believer of Jesus, He is our hope. He's the chief cornerstone and a, a mighty fortress. Like, all those things are, are solid. They're not going anywhere. So, we love you, and just make sure to keep an eye out for the next episode.